But when he does come and when he does move, we can't keep it a secret. Everyone sees the glory of God. Go with me to Luke chapter 1. And I'll begin reading from verse 30, part B. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. Verse 34. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, Since I'm a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Whenever God comes and he says something to us, it's not just for us, but it's for him. And it's his way in coming and working in our lives that his divine will is accomplished. See, he came to Mary and he told her she was going to give birth in a very sovereign way. <laughs> and my sister Mary said, Lord, how? She said, how? Because it's so big. It was unheard of. Of someone giving birth in such a sovereign way. And many times Jesus will come and he will say things to us that seem so out of the ordinary. But when Jesus came and gave her this word, this promise, he wasn't just speaking to her, but he was speaking also to Elizabeth and some others. And God was ready to put his divine will into place and begin to change times and seasons. So I want to encourage you today. Jesus might be saying something to you. Don't brush it aside. Don't brush it aside. See, our lives and all that we do are being written. And we are going down in history. And the question is, which side of history will you be on? 
Will you be on the side of history where you sing, Lord, I heard what you said. Now, how do I walk this out? What do you want me to do? You know, I came to a place in my heart this morning where I said, Lord, you know, sometimes we we know what we want to do for God. We're willing. But then there's that hesitancy where we verbally tell God and let the words leave our mouth. Because we know that when we go and we tell God and the words leave our mouths, then God has something to work with. And I said, Lord, ask me anything and I'll do it. So what if Jesus is speaking to you regarding something? Act. Obey him promptly. The same way Mary did. Don't lose time questioning God. But know that he's speaking in your heart and in my life that he can bring the same change that he brought in the day of Mary. See, Mary didn't understand what was going to happen. But because we have God's word, we can look back and we can say, oh, wow, Messiah came. People were healed. God will speak his word, but then the devil will also come and try to thwart you from doing what God has asked you to do. Know that the rhema word that he has spoken to your heart, he will give you the power to come and quicken it. We wait for revival in America. God has spoken a word to you. And that word is not in isolation, but that word is tied to God's will and being fulfilled on the earth. So know today that God will give you the power to do what he has said he has asked you to do. Only be willing and respond quickly. The message is entitled today, Faith and Works. Faith and Works. Mighty God, Lord Jesus, would you open for us today this issue of faith and works? Lord, all we can do is begin to just touch the surface. But I ask that you would begin to open our hearts and our minds that we could understand. Thank you, Jesus. I pray in your name. Amen. I was raised in a very small country church of about 90, 95 believers. I was always troubled because the church did not grow, regardless of what we did to try to make it grow. When I was in high school, I was sent to a boarding school, and there I attended a congregation of between six and nine hundred people. 
and became involved in their ministry and was delighted because it was a church that seemed to be growing. And then I moved on to college and there became involved in a church that was a mega church and became directly responsible for programming Friday evening. And that every Friday evening, we would have well over a thousand people in attendance. We did it with Broadway production, music, video, drama, stage lighting, stage effects. It was very popular and drew a large crowd. And we thought we were doing what we were supposed to be doing. I've now been a pastor for over 40 years. And out of that perspective, I want to share with you some things about the church and about why we do things the way we do them here. And you will see after I share this perspective that without my ever asking the greeters as they spoke today or as the offertory was given, all of it fits into the paradigm that I'm going to share with you that dramatically limits the National Prayer Chapel. Now, if we changed the paradigm of the church, we would soon grow out of this building and we would be on our way to being a megachurch. It would not be difficult to do. The problem is it would cut across everything I believe out of the Word of God, and I would have to prostitute the work of the ministry to build that great church. I will not do that. Let me explain. Through all of the years that I've been a pastor, there has been one simple paradigm that has been absolute orthodoxy in the American Christian church. And that is that our goal is for men and women to know Jesus Christ. You will not find a pastor in evangelical circles who will not agree that the goal of the church is to know Jesus. We believed that the way a person got to know Jesus was to hold worship services. And those worship services in America, in order to keep people coming, have become more and more a Broadway show. Pastors being CEOs, being entertainers. Now in many churches in Washington, D.C., a committee will gather and they will determine the topics that will be dealt with in the church. And the senior pastor meets with them to finalize what the sermon will be, what the drama will be, what the video clips will be from Superman or 
Batman or whatever the modern movie is that the clips have to be drawn from. And if you will go to Christianity Today, a very popular evangelical magazine, and if you will look at the descriptions of the jobs where churches are looking for pastors, you will find in almost every instance the pastor must be well-versed in multimedia because the multimedia will be used during the sermon. Also, he has to be willing to be collegial in his preparation of the sermon. He will not prepare the sermon alone. He will do it as a joint project of a group of people. All of this, along with coffee and donuts at church, all of this to make the worship service, quote-unquote, meaningful. We must be relevant. Secondly, the church believes that it will accomplish its task by setting up an educational system in the church. Classes. And through the years, I have done an educational program in my churches, much like a seminary, where teachers come, where we share dinner together every Wednesday evening, and then we separate out to go to our different classes. And different teachers come to teach different classes. Could be a cooking class. It could be a class in accounting could be a class in the stock market and trading and finances. It could be a class intro to the New Testament or a class in whatever topics the committee feels will draw people. Third, the church has believed that small family groups are necessary. And so the desire is to get everybody in the church to join a family group where you meet in a home with a small group of people to study the scriptures together, to have a discussion. Frankly, that discussion has often been a pooling of ignorance. But that's the standard that we have operated by. Fourth, you must have ministry opportunities available for the people. You must get them involved. So let's have the choirs. Let's have the music groups. Let's have outreach programs. Let's get people going out, passing out tracks. Let's do whatever we have to do to involve people. Let's make Let's make people ministers. Let's give them a job in the church. Because if you give people a job in the church, they're going to to be integrated in and they're going to stay. And then, last, let's have social activities. Let's have regular dinners. Let's have regular parties. Let's have a rich social environment. So we have the singles 
so they have a place to go and connect with each other. Let's let's have the young adults so that they have their group that they go to. Let's have what do they call the old people? Uh, the golden goodies, where people like me are supposed to go. Uh, now, what I've described for you is the common understanding of the church in America. It does not work. It has totally failed. People do not come to Jesus and get close to him by attending worship services. People do not get to know Jesus and come close to him by going to classes where they learn information. People do not draw close to Jesus by being in charge of the coffee and donuts or being in charge of the flowers on the table, or by coming and setting up. Those are all important things for social adhesion among the people and a sense of belonging. It is an institutionalized church, and we are a nation of institutions. And the church has become in America an institution And an institution has one rule, survival. So you do whatever you have to do for the institution to survive. It is not there except in an ancillary way to serve the needs of people. You only serve the needs of people so that they will continue coming and getting and receiving so that the institution doesn't die and the money keeps flowing. Now, there are several classes of people who come to the church. First, there is the unbeliever who is invited to come to church. They've never really made a commitment. They come. They're brought into what is called the beginner's class, where they begin to learn the theology of the church. They begin to learn the doctrines of the church. And then they begin to enjoy the fellowship of the church. They enjoy the choir. They enjoy the social activities. Their needs are being met by the church. Robert Schuller used to always famously say, find a hurt and heal it. Find a need and fill it. And people will come crowding into your church. He was the epitome of the modern church. And it's not by accident that when he retired, bitter fights broke out in his family over who was going to be in charge, the son or the daughter. And in that bitter battle, the church was divided. 
And finally, the Crystal Cathedral was sold to the Roman Catholic Church. And the the Garden Cathedral, as it was called, the Crystal Cathedral is no more. The whole church broke apart and is gone. His institution was destroyed. Many in the church said it was destroyed because he was not a part of a larger institution that exercised power and control over him. He was a maverick. He went his own way. Now, most who are part of the church today are either beginners or enjoying the benefits of the church, enjoying the friendships, the social connections. They feel like they're contributing because they're helping to set up the chairs. They feel like they're, they're needed in the church because they fill certain functions And some of you who have been in church all your life know exactly what I'm talking about, that you go to serve. The problem is the serving doesn't fill the need. The social life doesn't fill the need. And the sermons that are given, erudite though they be, do not change a person dramatically and set them free. Now, the National Prayer Chapel has chosen at the leadership of the Holy Spirit to take a dramatically different course. At the prayer chapel, we have very few unbelievers. We have very few Beginners. We have even less who just come to enjoy the church. Quite frankly, the National Prayer Chapel is not a very enjoyable church. That does not mean that we don't want unbelievers. We do. It doesn't mean that we don't want beginners. We do want them. And we do everything we can to reach out to them and put our arms around them and love them and draw them into the fellowship of Jesus. But there are two other levels. One, where a person is invited to get serious about Jesus where a person is disciplined in the reading of the scriptures and where a person begins to understand the desperate nature of their condition and they begin to be forced into the prayer closet. In other words, the National Prayer Chapel is by design a boot camp for heaven. Boot camp by design is not supposed to be enjoyable first and foremost. Even though I have to say, I find you all extremely enjoyable. I love you. 
but I have a singular purpose in mind. And that is that you should know Jesus Christ and be like him. I'm not satisfied to simply have a social grouping of people who come and put their offering in the plate so that we can do the typical church deal. I have no interest in it. The worship service, the classes, the small groups, the ministry opportunities, and the social activities have not worked in the modern church. That does not say that there's anything wrong with any of those. The problem comes with the lack of a cutting edge of holiness that cuts across the worldly culture of our day and confronts you and says, look, what you're doing is not working. It's wrong. Now let yourself come to the end of your flesh and begin to depend on the arm of the Almighty God. Let him take you into the desert. Let him begin to deal with your pride. Let him begin to deal with your prayerlessness. Let him begin to deal with your money and your time and your energy. I spoke with a with a person by the telephone yesterday, a, a listener called me. And they asked me, Pastor, how do I know what is right and what is wrong? And I said, if you want to know what is right and what is wrong, begin to pray and ask the Lord to open for you the gates of righteousness. And as soon as you begin to pray that the Lord would open the gates of righteousness for you, he will begin to tell you what is right and what is wrong. If I were to come perchance to each one of you, and I were to say, could you tell me where in this past week you have rejected the Holy Spirit's voice? Most of you could very quickly tell me. A few of you would say to me, I have not rejected the Holy Spirit's voice at all, and this is what I have suffered. If you have no suffering in your life, it's because you're comfortable in the devil. It's that simple. If you have no trouble in your life, it's because the devil wants you to go to sleep. And if you begin to cry out and ask Jesus if he would open for you the gates of righteousness, you will immediately begin to enter into great trouble. Because the devil does not want you to walk through the gates of righteousness. And he will do anything in his power to block you by raising up your pride 
Someone said to me this last week the most amazing thing. Pastor, you're like a child. I said, what? You're like a child. You just say it the way it is. There's no filter. Ah. Thank you. Except you become as a little child, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. The filters have to go between us and God. We have to ask, open the gates of righteousness. And so at the National Prayer Chapel, we have a very clear end goal. And that is to be utterly, totally, and completely sold out to Jesus. So that we no longer have any private life. We have no portion of our heart that we have not given over to him. For him to plow. I want to read it for you. In the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians, verse 27. To them, that is the saints. God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's where the National Prayer Chapel keeps steadily moving forward on, that you would, without any reservation, have Jesus Christ in you, and you would have the hope of glory in your heart where there's no other agenda. It's Jesus and Jesus and Jesus and Jesus. It's not that somebody loves me. It's not that I have a successful career. It's not that I have a a pleasant experience at home. It's not that my husband or my wife agrees with me and dotes on me and fawns over me. That's not what it's about. It is about being filled with the Holy Spirit, with Christ in you, the hope of glory, where all pride is removed. All arrogance is removed. Where we walk in Jesus Christ. Now, a worship service to me only has value if arrows of the Holy Spirit, convicting arrows of the Holy Spirit, strike your heart. So that when you leave this place, You're either mad at me or you've been convicted by the Holy Spirit and know very clearly this week where you need Jesus to take the hammer and the saw and go after you.
So when pride rises up, when the urge to show off rises up, we know that Jesus needs to take the chisel and the hammer to that. When anger rises up in our spirit, we know Jesus needs to come and take the hammer and the chisel on that. But he's not going to do it while we're sitting in church. But it's here that you see the master plan and you begin to allow yourself to be shaped by the Holy Spirit. It's here that the words that are spoken must bring conviction to your hearts so that when you go home, you will go into the scriptures and you'll go into the prayer closet and you will focus your heart on asking Jesus to finish opening for you the gate of righteousness. Now I want to read for you the scripture. I usually would give the scripture first. Today, the scripture comes last, and I'm going to be very short today. Look at your watches. You've never seen me preach such a short sermon. (laughs) But my voice is not strong, and I have radio tomorrow. I want to read for you the scripture now. It's found in the book of James. The second chapter beginning with verse 14. What is the benefit, my brethren, if anyone may claim to have faith, but may not have works? The faith is not able to save him, is it? Then if a brother or sister may be naked and lacking daily food, And anyone from among you may say to them, You depart in peace, warm yourself and be fed. But if you may not give to them the necessities of the body, what is the benefit? It's clear that he's saying the church is not supposed to be a matter of words that are cheap. Thank you. And words without actions are cheap. Don't say you love me and then act in a way that demonstrates your scorn of me. Don't say I love you and then go act in a way counter to that. Husbands, don't say you love your wife and then cut her off. That's an oxymoron. Don't say you love your husband and then are bitter in anger against him. Love is not bitter and love is not anger. Read 1 Corinthians 13. There are actions required, not cursing. But actions. The devil doesn't care what you say as long as there's no action backing it up. 
the devil only becomes concerned when you begin to act, not when you talk. Let's continue, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith. And I have works. You show me your faith apart from works, and I'll show you my faith by means of my works. I mean, don't say you love Jesus Christ and then don't give him any tithe. Don't say, I'm going to follow Jesus, and I'm going to keep all my money. Pastor, I can't afford to give tithe. What? You can't afford not to give tithe. You have holes in your pockets. That's why you don't have any money. Because you're withholding from the Lord. Please hear what I'm saying. We can't play games with God. He sees it all. He reads the heart. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble from fear. But are you willing to know, O foolish man, that the faith apart from works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by means of works, having offered up Isaac, his son, upon the altar? I just read the ESV this week in their study notes, and they go into extreme contortions trying to explain how James and Romans agree one with another. And Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says, you're saved by faith and faith alone. Well, for the modern church, faith is absent from works. They believe that you are declared righteous. But that's not Paul's teaching. He teaches that you are made righteous, and as a person who has been made righteous, you have entered the gates of righteousness, and you do what the Word says you're to do. You see that the faith was working together with his works, and that by means of works, faith was completed. And the Scripture was fulfilled. The one saying, and Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That word accounted? is literally inventoried. This was not a make-believe inventory. His life was inventoried by God. And he saw that Abraham was doing what he was told to do. And that made him a friend of God. It's by the power of God that he did it. It wasn't by his own flesh. The gates of righteousness open, and righteousness is a gift given to us 
if we will not reject it because of our pride. And likewise, in verse 25, was not Rahab the harlot also justified, dikasune, made righteous by means of works, having received the messengers and having sent them out by a different way? For just as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also the faith apart from works is dead. Now what I want you to hear today is that God cares. God cares. He loves us. One of my greatest sorrows is that I meet every week with a group of men and all of their religious practices have not caused them to stop cursing, has not turned them aside from the pursuit of wealth, has not given them a heart of compassion and love, but rather they're enjoying their retirement years by traveling and enjoying their life as they prepare to die with absolute assurance they're going to heaven without righteousness. And that's typical of the American church. They go to church and one man is in charge of every week providing the donuts and making the coffee. And that's a wonderful gift of service and he does it unto Jesus. But after all of these years, his wife is not a Christian. She's still a Buddhist. There's no Christian witness in the home. There's no ability to get on his knees and break through to God and win his wife for Jesus Christ because there's no testimony in his life. She's come to church a few times and said, Honey, this is boring because there's no juice there. There's no life of testimony. There's no life of victory in the house. It's simply going through the same rituals every Sunday. The way we step up our walk with Jesus is by combining our faith and our work. By doing what the Holy Spirit tells us to do, He brings conviction over how we're cutting people off. He brings conviction regarding the bitter words that flow from our mouth. He brings conviction regarding lying. He brings conviction regarding lust or stealing. I've known government workers who, when they go home, their briefcase is filled with Tablets and pens and 
rolls of scotch tape, and they say, the government owes me. And so they take everything they can take in their briefcase home with them. Because the government owes me. Beautiful scissors, letter openers. Talk with a restauranteur. Very fine restaurant. I said to him, How many of these things do you lose? He said, oh, pastor. People slip them into their pockets, into their purses, and I have to replace them every month. A major expense. That's common today in the restaurant business. Knives, forks, spoons. I can remember in fine restaurants when I was a child. It was all silver. It wasn't plated silver. It was silverware. It was beautiful silverware. You won't find a restaurant in the country today that has silverware. If they did, they would have to strip search you on the way out of the joint. Because Americans would steal them blind. Because the moral value is no longer present in the culture. So now they have stainless steel. And they still get ripped off. If you want your life in Christ to begin to take action and soar, then your works have to match your faith. You must identify the areas of weakness in your heart and begin to pray through victory in that area. In the early hours of this morning, the Lord woke me. And he put his finger right on a part of my life. And he said, That part of your life, Ray, still belongs to you. I want it. I said, Lord, I gave you that. I've given you everything. He said, you said you gave it to me. But you still operate like you're in charge of it. I want it. Lord, it's yours. Didn't take me a second to come through. Lord, it's yours. I want every part of my life to belong to Jesus. The purpose for the National Prayer Chapel is that Jesus Christ would dwell in you and that you would be a walking testimony before those in your circle of influence that you belong to Jesus Christ, that he is your Lord and your Savior, and you walk in righteousness. You walk clean before God. And any part of your world, any part of your heart that rises up against Jesus, you know that's 
fallow ground that has to be plowed up. And let's be honest, that's why we call it a boot camp. Some of us, no, I'll talk about me. I've been very slow in the way of righteousness. The Lord has had to take the chisel and the saw and the mallet to me to shape me. I have no pride in who I've become. It's his fault. He did it. And I want the work finished. Now, let's pray. And then I'm going to open it. And I'd like to hear any comments or questions you have about what's been shared. Lord, I thank you for today. And I thank you for the power of your spirit that has cut us off as a prayer chapel from being a traditional, happy church. I thank you that you've made us into a boot camp of righteousness and holiness. And with that, the upwelling of joy as victory is attained. Lord, thank you. I pray in your holy name. Amen.